You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, global economics correspondent here at The Post. Today we have two segments on American economic competitiveness. Later, we'll be joined by Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton, a member of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. But first, historian Chris Miller will join us to talk about the global semiconductor industry. Chris is the author of the terrific new book, Chip War, and also an associate professor of international history at Tufts University. Chris Miller, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with some, uh, let's start at the beginning with some uh, very basic facts. For, for folks who hear about semiconductors, computer chips, microchips, uh, just what is a semiconductor? What does it do? And why are they so important? So a chip is a small piece of silicon that has millions or billions of tiny circuits carved into them. And these circuits flip on and off, producing all of the ones and zeros undergirding all computing. So most data storage, all processing comes from these little circuits turning on and off. And today chips are in all types of devices. It's not only smartphones or PCs that have chips inside of them, but also dishwashers, automobiles, coffee makers, and most importantly of all, data centers, which increasingly process and remember our data in vast quantities. And the modern economy has reached a situation where it just can't function without access to uh, thousands and thousands of semiconductors that we rely on every single day. And so as you explained uh, in, in Chip War, uh, this industry began in the United States. Uh, wasn't that long ago that we dominated manufacturing of uh, semiconductors, but the U.S. lost its lead, uh, and, and quite dramatically so. How did it happen? Well, today there are only three companies in the world that are close to the ability to produce cutting-edge processor chips. One of them is a U.S. firm, Intel, but it's fallen a bit behind technologically uh, compared to two foreign firms, TSMC of Taiwan and Samsung of South Korea. And it's in Taiwan where 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips are manufactured. Chips that go into your smartphone, into PCs, into data centers. And the Taiwanese have succeeded for several reasons. First off, TSMC was founded with a unique business model. It doesn't design any chips, it only manufactures them, letting it uh, create extraordinary efficiencies in its manufacturing process. In addition to that, the Taiwanese have also learned how to drive down the cost of chip making. And today, it's estimated that a new chip making facility will cost 20% or so less in Taiwan than it does in the United States. And the cost differential coupled with the uh, unique capabilities of TSMC have led to a dramatic decline in U.S. market share when it comes to manufacturing semiconductors. And, and this is also a very uh, globalized supply chain uh, for chips. Uh, as, as we saw here during, uh, during the pandemic, a, a shortage of semiconductors really disrupted uh, auto production and, and other industries, uh, leading to, to serious uh, product delays. What, what are the, the key global choke points in this global supply chain? Where, where are the potential kinks in the chain? 
Well, there are a number of steps in the, uh, the supply chain that produce ships where there's just one country or a couple of companies with relevant capabilities. A lot of the precise machine tools needed to manufacture advanced ships are produced by just a handful of companies, largely in the US, Japan, or the Netherlands. The software tools needed to design ships are largely produced in the US. But the primary risk today, the concern hanging over the chip industry is that most chip manufacturing happens in East Asia and a disproportionate share of the manufacturing of advanced semiconductors happens in Taiwan. And as the Chinese military continues to threaten Taiwan security, uh, worries that chip supply out of Taiwan might be disrupted have grown. And, and so does the existence of, of these kind of uh, weak spots or, or again, choke points, does that represent uh, to some degree a failure of U.S. policy uh, over the years, or is it simply a function of the inherent structure of this industry? Well, I think it's a mix of both. There are clearly huge economies of scale in the chip industry, which is why at many parts of the manufacturing process, there's only a couple of very large firms that are capable of producing cutting edge technology. And these economies of scale are built into the way the industry functions. But I think it's also a policy error. If you'd asked any US policymaker 20 years ago, would they feel comfortable with a chip industry in which 90% of the most advanced chips were produced in one country, uh, also a country that happens to be the world's most dangerous political hotspot, uh, most policymakers would have said no. And yet we found ourselves uh, in this situation uh, because there wasn't sufficient foresight among policymakers to understand where industry trends were headed and where trends in relations between China and Taiwan were headed. Right. And the Biden administration uh, now, perhaps belatedly uh, on behalf of the U.S., is trying to do something about this, uh, trying to uh, repatriate uh, or encourage at least domestic manufacturing of semiconductors through the Bipartisan CHIPS Act, which provides uh, about $39 billion in subsidies to encourage domestic manufacturing, another 10 or $11 billion in R&D spending. Uh, it's an incredibly ambitious effort on behalf uh, of U.S. industry of the kind that we really haven't seen in, in quite some time. Uh, there are already uh, some mixed views as to its prospects for success. Morris Chang, uh, who I know you know, the founder of Taiwan's TSMC, has, has called the CHIPS Act, quote, a wasteful and expensive exercise in futility, close quote. What's your view of it? Is he right? Well, I don't think he's right. I think the right way to look at the CHIPS Act is as an insurance policy. It's certainly going to be expensive, but it would be a lot more expensive to have a Chinese attack or blockade on Taiwan in the absence of efforts to rebuild uh, chip making capacity elsewhere. And so I think if you look at the CHIPS Act in the U.S., similar efforts in Europe, Japan, India and other countries, what you see is Globally, there's a desire by many governments to rebalance the semiconductor supply chain and to add a bit more geographic diversification in case something goes wrong in the Taiwan Straits and China escalates militarily. It's probably not the most likely option. Uh, China is probably going to be deterred from attacking Taiwan, but the cost of a Chinese attack would be catastrophic. We'd see great depression levels of disruption to global manufacturing. And so I think the CHIPS Act has to be seen as an effort to insure ourselves against this very dangerous risk.
And of course, this isn't the, the first time that the industry has uh, called on Washington for uh, special assistance. As you tell the story in, in chip war back in the 1980s, there was a, a venture called Semitech. Uh, explain to our viewers how these two initiatives differ and what sort of success or failure uh, Semitech uh, resulted in. Well, Semitech was created in the late 1980s intended to improve manufacturing technology capabilities among U.S. firms. At the time, they were facing a lot of competition from uh, companies in Japan. And Semitech was mixed in terms of its efficacy. There were a, a number of efforts that Semitech undertook, including most of the efforts that consumed majority of the budget that didn't work. Uh, efforts to fund certain types of new chip making tool development, uh, for example, where its, uh, its success rate was pretty low. Uh, there were other impacts uh, that Semitech had that were more positive. For example, it brought together companies in the chip industry and had them agree on the future pathway for technological development so that the tool makers could introduce new tools at a time when chip makers were ready to integrate these tools into the manufacturing processes. But in aggregate, I think Semitech was a disappointment. And the challenge that we face now is to produce better results this time. I think a key difference, though, between Semitech in the 1980s and the CHIPS Act now is the focus on manufacturing incentives. Congress passed the CHIPS Act because they realized that it was more expensive to produce chips in the United States and that this cost differential was driving manufacturing offshore. And so the CHIPS Act is intended to reduce that cost differential, make it more commercially viable to produce chips in the United States. I, I want to drill down on a, a couple of those points a, a little bit later. But first, I want to bring in a question from the audience. Uh, a viewer in Washington, D.C. asks uh, how a U.S. manufacturing renaissance will be possible amid a labor shortage due to retiring baby boomers, declining birth rates, and hostility toward immigration. Uh, what do you think about the workforce part of this equation? Well, I think workforce development is going to be a key challenge. Now, it always is in the chip industry. The chip industry has, from its earliest days, focused on attracting uh, workers from uh, the university level all the way uh, through uh, PhD programs, drawing them into the chip industry. And it's got a pretty good track record of establishing the talent pipelines that it needs, but certainly there's more focus than ever on making sure there are clear pathways from educational institutions into chip firms that will provide the workforce that's necessary. I think on the question of immigration, there's a lot that ought to be done to facilitate uh, uh, the uh, access by chip makers in the U.S. to foreign talent. And one of the challenges that's faced is that there's a limited number of H-1B visas, for example, each year, uh, which makes it harder for chip makers to hire skilled workers uh, from abroad. If Congress were to fix that, uh, that would certainly make a difference in the chip industry's ability to address the talent issues that they face. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the, the types of jobs that are actually going to be created in, in some of these major uh, facilities uh, that we're already seeing investment announcements, uh, Intel uh, in Ohio, Micron uh, in upstate uh, New York, IBM as well. Uh, the administration has, of course, uh, pitched these as, as sort of bringing back uh, American manufacturing. Uh, but for folks who've been laid off from plants in Ohio or uh, New York or elsewhere uh, in the Midwest, uh, how applicable are the skills for a typical manufacturing worker to what's required in one of these 
uh, semiconductor uh, facilities. Well, I think it's it's natural and to be expected that political leaders will cast programs like this as job creation programs. But the reality is that that was never the intent of the CHIPS Act, nor will it be the primary impact. There, there are a, a moderate number of employees in a typical chip making facility, several thousand. Um, but the CHIPS Act's success or failure shouldn't be measured in terms of the jobs it creates. It's it's not going to be a uh, efficient as a job creation program because the chip industry requires huge capital investment relative to the number of workers in facilities. So I, I think as analysts, we can sort of set aside the political rhetoric about job creation. This is an insurance policy designed to build up manufacturing capacity in case something goes wrong in Asia. Now, some have also uh, criticized the administration for trying to add on uh, additional uh, objectives to what was intended to be a very focused program to develop a new semiconductor capacity. Uh, and, and one measure uh, designed to encourage the provision of childcare facilities by companies receiving the subsidies has gotten a lot of attention. The administration says, this is not us trying to you know, get cute and achieve a social goal uh, that we couldn't get through Congress. This is actually needed to broaden the potential pipeline uh, of workers coming in. Republicans on the Hill say, no, this is just you know, the administration trying to sneak something through that they couldn't pass legislatively. How do you see this child care issue? Well, I think if you look at the, the child care issue or some of the other issues that have gotten media headlines, for example, the green energy requirements, some of the information sharing between firms and the government, what you find is that a lot of them are preferences that the Commerce Department has stated rather than requirements. And when companies apply for funds, be the CHIPS Act, that sets off a period of negotiations between companies and the government about the specifics of a deal. Will the government invest in a project and if so, under what terms? And so I think we should expect that the government will uh, continue to express a preference for having companies provide childcare. But I also think that when we get into the details of negotiations between companies and the government, there will be real questions to be asked about what is commercially viable to uh, provide what types of provisions uh, can be cost effectively added on to these deals. And I think the the team negotiating the chip incentives at the Commerce Department are actually likely to be laser focused on the question of can they get major increases in manufacturing capacity at uh, the, the lowest cost possible. Uh, and insofar as they keep focusing on that, I think we're probably not going to see actually child care issues or green energy issues or any of the other issues that have sparked controversy uh, getting in the way of deals that need to be done. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, a key goal here is to bring down the cost of building these new semiconductor uh, facilities in the U.S. Can that be accomplished without major reform of the permitting process uh, at both the federal and state level? Isn't that one of the key uh, contributors to higher costs? It's a, it's a huge issue. You're absolutely right. And today it takes longer to build a chip making facility in the U.S., not only compared to Taiwan or to Korea or to China, but even to Europe, uh, which is not known as an area with light touch uh, permitting regulation. So we certainly need permitting reform at the federal level. Uh, but also, as you say, at state and local levels, which are often uh, just as onerous. And it's it's not simply a question of what are the regulatory burdens imposed, but also how rapidly are those worked through? Because the chip industry uh, requires extraordinary levels of capital investment to build a new plant. And so 
every day that a plant is still not up and running uh, imposes huge costs because the equipment's already been paid for. And so getting permitting streamlined at both the state, uh, local and federal levels is very important. Now that's an issue that's not really in the hands of the Commerce Department. That requires action from Congress at the federal level and action from state and local governments, but it's a big issue that the CHIPS Act has not yet fully addressed and we need to see more action from the government to streamline these processes. I'd like to talk a little bit about the US-China uh, angle here. Uh, China's been trying for most of the last decade to develop its own domestic semiconductor uh, manufacturing capabilities uh, without a, a great deal of success thus far. Uh, why is that and what lessons, uh, if any, do you draw from the Chinese experience? Well, I don't really know that there are a lot of lessons that are directly applicable to the, the U.S. I think the two problems that China has faced are, first off, they don't have access to many of the most advanced chip-making tools, which are produced in the U.S., Japan, and the Netherlands. And so it's hard to produce advanced chips without chip-making tools uh, that are necessary for the manufacturing. That's a problem the U.S. is not going to have. The, the second issue is that the Chinese government has in, invested its, uh, its vast subsidies in chip-making very, very poorly. Um, because it's never been focused on commercial viability. It's been focused on uh, simply building out manufacturing capacity. And so I don't think we're likely to see um, the Commerce Department fall into a similar trap. They've been requesting lots of information from potential applicants precisely because they want to be funding facilities that will be commercially viable. Whereas in China, there's never been a focus on commercial viability. Uh, it's just been capacity that's been the primary focus of policymakers. Now, last October, the Biden administration uh, issued new regulations prohibiting the export to China of our most advanced semiconductors, uh, and importantly, the, the equipment used to make them. Uh, administration officials have said that this was done purely on national security grounds, uh, it, just an effort to keep China from uh, catching up militarily or perhaps even leapfrogging us with some advanced weaponry. But of course, the, the semiconductors at issue here, as I understand it, are dual use uh, technologies and, and uh, what can be used for AI or quantum computing with military applications also has commercial uh, applications as well. Uh, is this uh, US effort purely aimed at national security or is it designed to hold China back economically as well? No, it's, it is aimed at national security, but it will have an impact economically because the exact same chips that can train AI systems for military use are also used to train AI systems for civilian use. It's the same principles that train a car to drive autonomously, that train a drone to fly autonomously. And there's just a couple of firms that make these chips, almost all American firms designing them and one Taiwanese firm manufacturing them. And so these controls are a major change in U.S. policy because they're not um, specifically focused on military uses. They can't be because the chips are widely used both for military and civilian uses. So they will end up having a major impact on Chinese civilian tech sector, too. Now, cooperation uh, from U.S. allies is critical to making this sort of a ban work. And uh, the Japanese and Dutch, uh, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, uh, have signed on to the U.S. effort. Uh, what do you make of that? Were you surprised by it? And how do you think the U.S. pulled that off? 
Well, to be honest, I don't think it is surprising. If, if you look at Japan, they're in the process of doubling their defense spending as a share of GDP precisely because they believe China is a major threat to their security. Uh, so in the context of doubling defense spending, uh, chip export controls are a relatively small move in comparison to the, uh, the change in your, their military posture. And I think governments across the world are looking at the extraordinarily rapid advances in AI. They're coming to realize the extent to which there's just a couple of companies capable of producing the types of chips that are uh, capable of training AI systems and realizing that if there's ever going to be an effort to control access to advanced AI systems, chips are going to be uh, a major part of the mechanism in place. So the, the U.S. strategy to slow down China's AI progress um, is seen as actually a, a very sensible strategy in, uh, in many governments, which are looking very nervously at the military ramifications, very nervous about the intelligence ramifications, and want to have more certainty that the AIs that are being developed are being developed in friendly countries first, and that uh, those countries can stay ahead in terms of their technology. Great. Well, this is an important story, and we'll be following it uh, closely here at, uh, at the Washington Post. Unfortunately, for now, we are out of time. Chris Miller, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA. Did you know that when the National Academy of Engineering ranked the world's top engineering achievements of the 20th century, they didn't choose spacecraft or automobiles or computers. They chose the electric grid. The idea was that reliable electricity was the great enabler of everything else. In this century, though, we're asking the grid for a lot more, not just to provide our economic backbone, but to help us build a more sustainable, resilient future. And so joining me today is Karen Wayland, CEO of Gridwise Alliance, which serves the electricity industry with a vision to transform the U.S. power grid. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Barbara. Karen, I want us to explore what's possible now in this decade of action for infrastructure when it comes to grid modernization. I've heard you comment that the grid technologies we need are available. The challenge is that they're being deployed in a patchwork fashion. Help us understand the challenge and share with us how the bipartisan infrastructure law can be part of the solution. Well, this is really um, an exciting time for um, the electrical the electricity sector. And um, we're seeing change across the sector at a rate that's unprecedented in the history of, of this country's um, electrification journey. Uh, but what's happening is that the transformation is happening, as you mentioned, in a patchwork nature, meaning that in some places where there have been significant investments, the grid uh, is, is truly a modern grid that has um, you know, visibility, it has advanced controls, it's able to integrate renewable energy and, and um, increase its reliability and resilience. But in other places, these are very expensive investments and smaller utilities, particularly those in rural areas and smaller cities, are having trouble making those investments. So we're very excited about the infrastructure bill that was passed by Congress last year because it, it, it contains billions of dollars to help um, all utilities and all uh, states and raise the bar on grid modernization and, and help make those investments and accelerate the transformation. Well, another area of the bipartisan infrastructure law we're really excited about is the vision to establish a national EV charging network. What are some of the key priorities for grid modernization as we transition to electric vehicles? 
That's a great question because um, the transition to electric vehicles is helping to drive some of the investments for grid modernization. So what we need to do is to be able to have a, a grid that um, allows grid operators to connect directly with vehicles. And right now, um, you know, vehicles can plug in and get charged, but ultimately we'd like true vehicle to grid integration where those vehicles can become resources to the grid and can provide power and provide resilience and provide those ancillary benefits, the, the um, essential reliability services that we need to keep a stable grid. Um, so it's happening and, um, and we expect that um, in the next five to 10 years, um, we'll see an increased number of vehicles and those vehicles will be able to truly integrate with the grid. You know, we are seeing a lot of innovation happening right now at the edge of the grid where power meets the end user. How does that change the dynamic of how communities can accelerate sustainability goals and become more resilient? Uh, these these vehicles, uh, I'm sorry, these grid edge um, technologies are allowing uh, a much more seamless communication with the resources that a customer might have behind the meter, like rooftop solar, like the batteries um, on the garage wall or in the vehicle. And, and what it means is that rather than relying on the bulk power system for all of its power and all of its resources, a local utility can look inward inside its service territory to the services that their customers can provide. And that's a really different way of thinking about how the grid operates, where you know, for 150 years, we saw one-way flow of electricity and information from the utility to the customer. And now we're seeing um, an evolution to two-way flow of both um, electricity and communication back and forth across the grid and between the customer. Yeah, so in this new world of two-way flow, additional forms of power generation on the grid, the use of vehicles as storage, frankly, the way buildings and transportation systems are gonna be interacting with the grid, a lot is changing and we really appreciate the advocacy of Gridwise Alliance, helping our policymakers really work out how to accelerate our progress there. Karen, thanks so much for joining me and for these great insights. And to those watching, if you'd like to learn more about these topics, Karen also joined me recently for a longer conversation on my podcast, The Optimistic Outlook, which you'll find wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and I'll turn it back to The Washington Post. And now, Back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm David J. Lynch, Global Economics Correspondent here at The Post. Next up is Congressman Seth Moulton. Congressman, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, David. Glad to have you. So President Biden has managed to get three major pieces of legislation through Congress that represent the broadest use of industrial policy in decades. Uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides a lot of clean energy subsidies, uh, and of course the, the CHIPS Act. Uh, put this in context for our, our viewers. How, how big a change is this from the way uh, we've done business here in Washington uh, over the last uh, generation or so? Well, it is quite a significant change. Um, you know, our model in America is that we rely on the free market. We rely on the private sector to drive innovation. And in so many ways, that's been key to our success. But when faced with particular national security or economic competitiveness challenges, as we are today, with the amount of uh, state subsidies that China is putting into things like their own semiconductor industry, America has often responded 
uh, with industrial policy. You know, certainly one of the, the biggest examples of this was during uh, FDR's presidency when we funded the Works Progress Administration to help get us out of the depression. There are also times when we've mobilized industries during uh, our world wars. And the space race is another example of a place where the federal government uh, put a lot of money, much of it going into private sector industry, uh, but it, it, the federal government invested to accelerate that development and, uh, and, and win a competitive race against one of our adversaries across the globe. Now, some House Republicans are already trying to reverse uh, the clean energy spending and the in the showdown over the uh, the debt ceiling, which is coming up uh, in the next couple of months. How confident are you that these initiatives, uh, given all the political polarization in Washington, will really represent a lasting change of direction? Well, there's just always some Republicans who are trying to reverse just about anything um, because uh, the, it, it's a party that uh, at times has really just tried to bring us backwards. The rest of the world is getting ahead of us on uh, the transition to a clean economy, while many, many members of the Republican Party for a long time were denying the fact that climate change uh, even existed, just simply denying science. So this is going to be a perennial political problem. But I also think that uh, that we are going to continue to make progress. And the progress that has been made under President Biden is truly unprecedented. Uh, that will continue even if some Republicans try to diminish pieces of it here and there. Now, the president also included language in the infrastructure legislation requiring the use of American-made uh, goods and materials in uh, the projects funded through the legislation. Uh, the problem in some cases though, is that some of those materials and goods are no longer made in the United States and waiting until you've ginned up new domestic suppliers adds cost and can delay some of these projects. How concerned are you about the tension between delivering uh, infrastructure improvements in a timely fashion so the taxpayers can see that this legislation is working uh, and yet taking time to, to satisfy the Buy America goals. Aren't these in conflict? I mean, to be honest, they are in conflict to a certain degree. And, and this is a concern that we have to, to we have to work through because I think we can all agree that we would like things to be made in America. You know, we want the economic benefits uh, from our industries and the parts that we get for other other, you know, other things that we are producing uh, to go to Americans. We want American workers to have jobs. We want American, uh, you know, factories to be um, producing goods that we sell to the world rather than buying everything uh, from China or other places like that. But of course, it's not so simple, right? I mean, we have trade. A trade exists across the world because certain companies, certain countries have certain advantages, competitive advantages uh, in, in, in certain things. And so what we really need to do is figure out the right balance. Um, I, I don't foresee a world where every single thing is 100% made in America. Uh, but at the same time, uh, especially during the pandemic, we recognize the risks that we have when we depend on foreign countries, especially if they're adversaries of ours, uh, for critical uh, supply chains, for the supply of, of critical goods. And China has uh, made their industrial policy to control rare earth minerals. These are the special, uh, you know, certain things that are mined, these special materials that are mined uh, in only a few places around the globe that are critical for many of our advanced technologies. And so, you know, your, your iPhone has a lot of 
uh, rare earth minerals in it. And China uh, controls an extraordinary percentage of the world's supply of these materials because way back in the 1990s, they recognized that this was going to be an issue and they developed an industrial policy really connected to their whole national security policy to control these resources around the globe. That's a critical vulnerability for us. If China just decides that they're going to cut off uh, the supply of these rare earth minerals to the United States in the same way that we have cut off the supply of advanced microchips to China, then we're going to be in a world of hurt. And so we have to develop the capacity to produce these rare earth minerals ourselves. That's an example of a place where we want something to be made in America. But does it mean that literally every plastic piece in a car needs to be made here? Uh, that's something that's up for debate. And you're right. Ultimately, it comes down to what's the most efficient use of taxpayer resources. Okay. I want to bring in a question from a member of the audience. Uh, viewer Ron Warwick of New Jersey asks, how will subsidies and central planning affect the efficiency of subsidized industries? And are we just trading supply stability and social justice engineering for higher prices? What would you say to Ron? Well, look, you know, the reason why America has thrived on a free market economy uh, with the innovation of the private uh, sector driving our success for uh, for most of the history of this nation is because we recognize that, you know, that these are risks, right? That if you just heavily subsidize an industry and you're not thoughtful about about uh, how we uh, use those subsidies, uh, that it can produce inefficiencies, that prices can go up and um uh, efficiencies of production go down. And so that's a risk with any of these policies. But I think if you look carefully at the Chips and Science Act and you look carefully at how uh, the administration, particularly the Commerce Department, intends to implement this legislation, they're taking a lot of these factors into consideration. You know, we're not just building factories with this taxpayer money. We're providing grants to help uh, private companies build these factories. Usually only about 15% of a factory's cost will come from this bill, but that 15% might be enough to uh, make the investment worthwhile, to, to justify building a factory in the United States uh, that otherwise a company might have looked to build in Asia, for example. So I think that these are real risks, and I acknowledge that, but we're being very thoughtful both in how the legislation was written and then how the administration is implementing it to minimize those risks to the American taxpayer. Now, the administration has, has also been criticized uh, for what uh, some on Capitol Hill say is losing focus with some of these major initiatives. With the CHIPS Act, uh, the, some of the contracting preferences have included uh, a provision for childcare on, on behalf of the companies. Uh, receiving subsidies. Likewise, uh, just today, the president's expected to sign an executive order that would direct all federal agencies to investigate whether uh, they can require uh, the recipients of all sorts of federal money, including perhaps the infrastructure uh, funding, uh, to provide uh, affordable child care. Is, is that something that you think is a good idea? Does, does the president have the authority to direct uh, through executive action something of this sort that he wasn't able to secure legislatively? Well, I think he does have that authority. And if you're asking me whether I think affordable childcare is a good thing for the country, it's a wholehearted yes, absolutely. Affordable childcare gets more people into the workforce and fundamentally strengthens 
our economy. And and look, candidly, if if the 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 biggest criticism that the White House can get on this legislation is losing focus, I mean, this just shows uh, how much the the critics are reduced to nitpicking here. Uh, this is not this is not a big deal. Yes, I think in this example, having affordable child care is a good policy for the United States of America, and it will improve the economic results of this legislation. Uh, but it is a very minor part of the grand scheme of things when we talk about the. Uh, the bill and the effects that it will have. Okay, I want to talk about high-speed rail, which I, I know you know something about. Before being elected to Congress, you worked for a time uh, on a project down in Texas that I believe is, uh, was trying to uh, connect Dallas and Houston. Still uh, trying. Uh, and <laughs> I was just going to say, 10 years later, uh, it's uh, still a great idea, and maybe it'll always be a great idea. Uh, but it's not the only high-speed rail project that's actually moved at a snail's pace, right? The, the San Francisco to Los Angeles connection out in California has now become notorious for cost, uh, uh, extra costs and delays uh, that have really called into question its viability. You know, what's the problem with these projects? Why can Europe and Asia uh, manage to do this more or less as a matter of course? Uh, and the United States, for some reason, you can't really seem to get uh, get any of it accomplished. What, what's the problem? Great question. Well, there are two. There are two fundamental problems. The first is that for decades in America, we have poured billions and billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies into highways and airports, and we've given absolutely nothing to high-speed rail. And so there's a fundamental uh, imbalance here, where the rest of the world looks at transportation problems and says what's the most economical way? What's the best return on investment for solving a transportation problem between two cities? The answer is often high-speed rail. You know, there's not some vast rail conspiracy in the rest of the world that just hasn't infected America. These other countries are making wise decisions uh, about transportation policy based on business and market realities. Where in the United States, we just say, no, you're not allowed to invest in high-speed rail. We don't even have a federal high-speed rail policy. We're just gonna continue subsidizing highways and airports, which in many cases are not the most efficient uh, option. The second issue is even if we do decide to build high-speed rail, or frankly, if we build a lot of different infrastructure projects in the United States, they seem to cost a lot more uh, than, than similar projects in the rest of the world. And there's not a simple answer for that. Uh, one of the issues is that we have uh, this really landmark environmental legislation called the National Environmental Policy Act from the 1970s. It's very well intended. It's done a lot to protect our environment. But when years of delays are incurred in a high-speed rail project, something that's fundamentally very good for the environment because of the lengthy NEPA process. And by the way, all this money is just going to lawyers and consultants. Um, it's not actually really going to building the high-speed rail line. Then all of a sudden doing the same project in the United States becomes much more expensive than doing the same project overseas. That's one example of where we've got to really look carefully at the, the bureaucracy around these infrastructure projects uh, and really learn some lessons um, from, uh, from other countries and how they're able to do them more efficiently. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about permitting reform because, as you say, it, it does seem to be a problem of environmental review, uh, at least in the legal system, run amok. Uh, but, you know, environmental objectives and transportation objectives uh, are, are at odds there for the Democrats. 
and our, you know, is, is a Democratic president, are Democratic members of Congress willing to say, you know, we've got to do a little bit less on the environmental side in order to achieve these other objectives? I mean, because that does involve taking on one of your key constituencies, doesn't it? Well, I'm a huge environmentalist. Um, I'm also one of the only members of Congress with a degree in science, so I very much uh, understand the importance of, of all of this. But I think that where the opportunity for political compromise is, is to say, you know, let's look at lessening uh, the, the NEPA requirements for a project that is fundamentally good for the environment, like all electric high-speed rail, gets a lot of people not only out of their cars by giving them a, another option or out of uh, uh, fuming planes um, by giving them another option, but also incentivizes the kind of um, you know urban centers with walkable communities uh, that are just much more sustainable community uh, sustainable growth. Uh, so there are multiple levels at which high-speed rail is better for the environment, not just direct emissions, um, but in all the other uh, things about how we live and how we get to train stations and things like that um, that affect our overall environmental picture. So we should be able to step back and say, look, if this is fundamentally good for the environment, then why are all these projects getting delayed and costs uh, uh, rising exponentially because of the environmental reviews? Now, look, on the other hand, if the environmental review process is holding up a major highway expansion, then that's probably a good thing because expanding highways is not only a terribly inefficient way to move people, used most highway expansions in the United States in the last uh, uh, 20 years have actually resulted in more congestion, literally going more slowly on our highways. Um, and we can get into that in more detail, but the bottom line is that these highway expansions are terrible for the environment. They take up an extraordinary amount of land. Uh, they increase emissions, they increase congestion. And so if the environmental review process makes us scrutinize those projects, then that's absolutely the right thing to do. Now, much of what's driving this uh, push for uh, industrial policy, certainly on the CHIPS Act, is concern over competition from China. You're a member of the new House Select Committee on Strategic Competition with China. Uh, Representative Mike Gallagher, a uh, Republican from Wisconsin, a rising star in the GOP, uh, is the panel's chairman. He said he really wants a bipartisan uh, effort through this committee. What do you make of, of the panel's uh, work so far, and, and why did you want to be part of it? Well, so far, it's been very bipartisan. And uh, I, I praise uh, not only Chairman Gallagher, uh, and rank of, ranking member Kristen Morthy on the committee, uh, but also the House uh, leadership on both sides of the aisle, Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries, for really making an effort to make this a serious bipartisan committee. Uh, we have an impressive uh, group of members who represent a lot of different backgrounds, not only national security, but economic issues in uh, manufacturing, financial services issues uh, that are bringing the, their wealth of knowledge and a really uh, diverse set of viewpoints to this committee. The reason why it's so important is because uh, we want at all costs, we want to avoid a war with China. And when Xi Jinping says that he intends to invade Taiwan, uh, and we've made it very clear uh, that Taiwan is an ally, a friend, and we want to see democracy preserved on the island, uh, then this uh, sets up a very dangerous situation between China and the United States, where China could launch a war, an illegal war, just like Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, that draws the US in. And let me just tell you, it would be catastrophic compared to uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, 
I mean, you could wake up at tomorrow and have two U.S. aircraft carriers at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean with 10,000 young Americans down there with them. I mean, the cost of a war with China would be extraordinary. And yet when China says they want to start a war, we have to really step up our deterrence. It's not just military deterrence, it's economic deterrence. It's really having a sophisticated geopolitical diplomatic strategy with our allies in the region to make the case to Xi Jinping that this is a bad idea. And if we ultimately succeed in deterring and preventing a war with China uh, in the Pacific, I, I think there's no more important thing that I could be doing in Congress today. Right. Now, the mood in Washington toward China has really shifted in recent years. After 40 years of engagement, there's a real uh, bipartisan uh, antipathy uh, toward China. Uh, where do you think, looking back, that U.S. policy toward China began to go wrong? And what, what, was, the, what was the fundamental mistake? Well, look, the reason for the change is very simple. Xi Jinping has said that he wants to invade Taiwan, and he's made that very clear. And he not only said that publicly, uh, but he said that privately. And if you look at, uh, you know, the, the way that they're investing in their military, the way they're, they're uh, in, investing in, in even things like building up their domestic semiconductor uh, capacity. I mean, this is all geared towards this absolutely terrible foreign policy objective that he, this autocrat, Xi Jinping, seems to think is important for his legacy in very much the same way that Vladimir Putin has tied taking over Ukraine uh, to his legacy. Now, there are a lot of differences between Russia and China, but in terms of the territorial ambitions of their autocratic leaders, they're very much aligned. So that is why U.S. policy has shifted. I'm not sure that we were wrong to engage with China before, that we were wrong to engage with China under a different regime, uh, that we developed economic ties and the real hope um, that developing those, those tight economic ties uh, would actually help bring uh, China more towards uh, Western values and democracy. That was a very legitimate uh, foreign policy position and I think it was a wise course for the United States to take. But because China has changed its ambitions, uh, China has uh, really set up this contest between autocracies and democracies across the world. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party oppresses people not only at home, but all over the globe. We just saw two people arrested in New York City, Chinese spies, for running a Chinese police station, a Chinese Communist Party police station in the United States of America. I mean, this is absurd. But this has all happened uh, under Xi Jinping. And so we've had to change our, our, our policy and our stance towards China as a result. Well, I, I have many more questions about, uh, about U.S.-China relations. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time. Uh, Congressman Seth Moulton, thanks very much for being with us today. Great to be here. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.